Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Oh, hey. Hey, I promise we're not going to start the podcast by cleaning any major appliances on this episode. <laughs> Listen, it had to be done. It had to be done sooner or later. <laughs> We had to deal with it. Um, We do have something exciting to tell you. Well, actually, uh, we alluded to it on our last episode, and that's that uh, we do have a couple of dates booked for live shows, and we can go ahead and announce the first two. Oh, okay. well, not necessarily the first two, but the two that have been booked. Right. They're the first two that have been booked. They may it's not, all semantics. It may not it doesn't be matter. <laughs> chronological, but uh, yeah. So on Tuesday, October 29th, we will be at the Comedy Zone in Charlotte, North Carolina. Now, this is Halloween week, so we're pretty excited about doing a mini Halloween week tour. So October 29th, Comedy Zone, Charlotte, North Carolina. Then October 30th, Halloween Eve... We're going to be going back to Zany's Comedy Nightclub in Nashville. Which is quickly becoming our home club. (laughs) Well, (laughs) when you position yourself so beautifully near to delicious noodles and vintage shops, I'm going to be there. Yeah, no, we we love the neighborhood that Zany's in Nashville is, uh, is in. We're looking forward to it. We have another date that we're in the process of locking down. We'll let you know if and when that happens. Until then, Charlotte on the 29th of October and back in Nashville on the 30th of October. Halloween Eve. I'm so jazzed. I've never been to Charlotte. This is, I, I don't need to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> it's all the things. Okay. Yep. yep. <laughs> and um, I'm not sure if tickets are on sale yet, but you can check our website and see. If they're not, they will be soon. Oh, P.S. We will have uh, VIPs available for both shows. Uh, again, uh, going to be setting up some sort of meet and greet situation, which sounds so weird. Meet and greet. Uh, We will be greeting you, yes, and we will be meeting you. But for some reason, the term meet and greet weirds me out a little bit. Well, you can't really greet somebody without meeting them. That's true. So it's redundant. 
That's accurate. One of my favorite movies of all time, and this just blew my mind the first time I saw it, and I and I think probably you would agree with this, The Matrix. The Matrix, the whole idea of operating inside of a computer mainframe, it's always fascinated me. Is it possible that we're living in a computer simulation? Is it possible? <laughs> well, Elon Musk, the founder of Tesla and SpaceX, thinks that it's not only possible, but likely. What? Yeah, a couple of years ago. This is according to Gizmodo. This is what Elon Musk says. Quote, the strongest argument for us being in a simulation probably is the following. 40 years ago, we had Pong, like two rectangles and a dot, and that was what the game was. Now, 40 years later, we have photorealistic 3D simulations with millions of people playing simultaneously, and it's getting better every year. Soon... We'll have virtual reality, augmented reality, and so much more. He said, if you assume any rate of improvement at all, then the games will become indistinguishable from reality, even if that rate of advancement drops by a thousand from what it is now. Then you just say, okay, let's imagine it's 10,000 years in the future, which is nothing on the evolutionary scale. And yet impossible for my brain to comprehend. So given that we're clearly on a trajectory to have games that are indistinguishable from reality, and those games could be played on any set-top box or PC or whatever, and there would probably be billions of such computers or set-top boxes, it would seem to follow that the odds that we're in base reality is one in billions. And then he says, and what's wrong with that argument? Is there a flaw in that argument, and he is not the only one to to think that essentially we're living in a video game. The odds of this being wait, but like what? <laughs> <laughs> I whose video game? Well, who knows? But how would that work? Well, it would be some sort of a hologram, and the universe they're beginning to determine actually is holographic. Brandeis University associate professor. Of physics, Matthew Hedrick works on one of the most cutting-edge theories in theoretical physics. It's the holographic principle. This is according to phys.org. That's P-H-Y-S dot org. He says that the universe is, uh, his theory is, a three-dimensional image projected on a two-dimensional surface, much like a hologram emerges from like a sheet of photographic film. Now, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds here with quantum physics and, stu- and such, but or physics in general. Einstein's uh, general relativity theory showed that space and time are not absolute. Mm-hmm. They're flexible and subjective. Different observers will perceive them differently. Right. But general relativity still assumes that objects exist locally and objectively in space-time. Now, quantum theory, on the other hand, shows that existence is neither local nor objective. It's all a bunch of probabilities and waves, non-locality. I don't mean to interrupt. It's just there's a lot of information here, and I'm still working on how to work in Gem and the holograms into this conversation. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, okay, gotcha, gotcha. I understand that. I, I shouldn't be surprised that your, your mind immediately went to Gem and the holograms. But basically... Glamour and glitter, fashion and fame. <clears throat> Basically, on the quantum level, observation and information is what defines the properties of objects. As Carl Sagan says, it gets messy. (laughs) For sure. In in the quantum level. 
Units are information in the realm of quantum mechanics, and they're called qubits. They use this as an illustration. If you had a jar and you filled it up with beans, every time you put a bean in it, the jar becomes more and more full. Mm -hmm. If you do the same thing with a qubit, what happens is it doesn't go in and fill the jar. It sticks to the surface, the flat surface of the jar. And the more you put on the side of the jar, it doesn't increase the volume. Instead, it increases the surface area that the qubits take up, which is what holograms are based on. All the information in a three-dimensional object is contained in a two-dimensional object. Three dimensions are perceived on a two-dimensional plane when the information bits, qubits in this example, build up to a point and they give the appearance of three dimensions, but they are actually two dimensions, which is how we would build holographic video games. Okay. They have not proved this yet, but they're making, as recently as this year, they've made discoveries to suggest that, in fact, what we perceive in this universe as three dimensions is really a three-dimensional projection from a two-dimensional plane. I've always enjoyed learning about uh, the parts of this world that we we can't see that behave differently than we might expect them to. Um, you know, we've talked about what the bleep, which, you know, the, the some of the science in that is a little, <laughs> but um, overall, crazy interesting. Um, I do have to say, as far as this uh, particular theory goes, I don't buy it. Us living in a video game? Yeah, no. Okay. What they have determined so far in these experiments quote unquote determined these experiments are to determine whether or not the universe is holographic not that we're in a video game got it go but the main thing that they have determined at this point is that the only thing that truly exists in the universe is information and the consciousness that processes it yeah okay yeah that makes sense i love that well, we have such a tiny, tiny baby reptile brain. Mm-hmm. Um, it to- I can totally buy into the idea that nothing is as we perceive it. I, I remember not long ago reading about how pink doesn't really exist. Not the pop singer, but she the color. Does, really. She does, for yeah. sure. As if anyone does, <laughs> it's pink. But um, that that part of... Even the people who are well-studied and versed in this kind of science can't even understand what it is that they're seeing. There's a disconnect between traditional physics, Newtonian physics, and quantum physics because things don't operate the same on the small scale and the very large scale. Right. And That's we, why we're looking for a unified theory. Right. The the whole uh, laws mm. thing. Out the window. Yeah. And a good example of that is the two slits experiment. And I don't want to get into that because that's a whole thing in itself. But if you go on YouTube and just type in two slits experiment. Be real careful, though, because you could come up with some real nasty stuff. Yeah. How about two slits physics? Dual slits. No, that's not good either. (laughs) Ah, you'll figure it out. Basically, what it says is that information is two different things. It's a particle and a wave until it's observed. And then it becomes one or the other, Mm -hmm. which is friggin' weird. So here is a fun thought experiment. I love thought experiments. This comes from the website highexistence.com. Is this a weed magazine? (laughs) It's something like that. 
there's a banner for their psychedelic seminar. So got it. Yeah, got it. Yes, greater understanding of the universe through drugs, through chemistry. I'm just going to read you part of this article. It says the following is a completely plausible explanation for the nature of our reality. The point is to get you to think outside the box, understand how we can never be 100% sure of what is really going on in the universe. Imagine this. The real year is something like 14,500. Technology has advanced to an insane level beyond even our wildest imaginations in the present. Video games, as we know them today, have become super realistic to the point of being able to be immersed in that game and not know the difference between reality and digital. Don't like it, but please continue. These super video games are, of course, hooked up directly to your brain. Of course. And can produce many other interesting effects, such as time dilation. In the video game, hundreds of years can pass by in mere minutes of quote, real-world time. And given the fact that certain illegal substances today can turn one hour into three or five, like DMT, ketamine, for example, this technology doesn't seem to be, you know, a big shocker. Mm. It could be kind of like a hybrid technology. You know what that makes me think of is that episode of Black Mirror that we loved so much. Yes. Yes. What was that called? San Jun... San San Jun... San Junipeo. San Junipeo. Yeah. I, yeah. We'll, I'm looking at it. Okay. All right. By far the standout episode in the Black Mirror series. San Junipero. Another element to this futuristic video game would be memory and knowledge replacement. Nope. While, in, while inside the video game and in real life, beings can add and remove memories and knowledge as they please, like a computer or in the Matrix. So you can go inside of a game and have a completely new personality. You can. It's <laughs> a horrible idea. <laughs> you, you, you know, why, why would that be a horrible idea? Well, I mean, I, I just think that um, probably if you want a new personality, you should just work on being a better person. <laughs> like, this is much easier, though. And it, it apparently involves ketamine. Just go to therapy. <laughs> okay. Um, that's, <laughs> that's called self-medicating, and it's not yeah, recommended. No, it's not. <laughs> just <laughs> don't like who you are? Take a bunch of drugs and play video games for a few hours. <laughs> well, there's a lot of people that do that already. I know. And we're certainly not advocating that. This is a thought experiment from the year 14,500. All right, fine. You'll have a completely new personality. You could. You can collect memories and skill sets. You can go in and not know, not even realize when you're in there that you're in a digital world. Nope. No, thank you. No, thank you. I... Am out. You wouldn't enjoy that? No. I didn't even like the movie Jacob's Ladder. I don't like at all the idea that you wouldn't have that distinguishing thing. Like, I need a top. I need a top that I can spin. <laughs> Inception. And I nice. need that. Okay. I got you. But maybe that's what you're in right now and you don't have a top and you just don't know it. Yeah, I don't buy that. Okay. Is it because you don't believe it or you just don't want to believe it? No, I don't believe it. Okay. There's been nothing that convinces me that that's accurate. The thought experiment goes on to say, obviously, this technology is, is pretty damn cool. Many people choose to spend their entire lives playing the games because they promote a literally infinite amount of possible experiences and existences. And, and really, you, you think of the, the possibilities. Some people claim that it is uh, simulated immortality because you can fit in millions 
of complete lifetimes in one life thanks to the time dilation effect. Ew, you could, no. You could live 100 years in, in the video game, then come back out and realize it's only been two minutes in real world and then just go have lunch. That sounds horrible. It's like the whole, when, when I first read Interview with a Vampire, I was like, why would anyone want this? <laughs> I have no interest in living a thousand lives. Not even a little. 73 seems like uh, it's really stretching it for me. 73 lives? No. Years. Yep. Okay. Well, in this scenario, they said, well, in the beginning, the utopia-like games were the most popular because people wanted to experience bliss. But Now, this is someone speaking to this imaginary, imaginary thought. Right. Pro- okay. Yeah. Okay. But- just like with everything, perfection gets boring. Right. That's what they said in The Matrix. The guy from The Matrix who was like, oh, oh. you like this? I built it. At oh, first, yeah, right, it was right. supposed to be yeah. perfect, but no one bought into it. Blah, blah, blah. Something like that. You remember the movie. Well, let's face it. Getting whatever you want without limits really wouldn't do it for you after a while. Oh, no. It was Mr. Smith who said that. Anyway, we need to watch that movie again. Yes, we do. It says, think of it like a video game where there is no challenge. You just get all of the weapons, gear, and prizes without doing anything. That gets pretty old. Yeah. Pretty fast. Sure. Consequently, there was a huge shift toward games with more challenging realities, universes where you had to overcome obstacles to become great and get what you wanted. Isn't that kind of life, though? That's the point. Right. So just go outside and do life (laughs) stuff. Here's the kicker, it says. You're in one of those video games right now and you don't even know it because you chose to have your real memory replaced so that the experience was more realistic and fun. When you, quote, die in so many years, you'll wake up to your real life, you'll look at the clock, you'll realize only a couple of minutes have passed, then you'll decide, well, what am I going to do now? Do I play another game or do I go get something to eat? Will real me remember my gaming experience? When you're in the real world, yes. But when you go back in, no. It's hypothetical, of course. Of course. Here are some interesting questions that they that they uh, posed. Number one, are the other players in this reality simulations or other beings playing with you in the same game similar to online gaming? So you look at me. Am I, am I a simulation or I th- am I somebody gaming in the real world in 14,500? I would imagine that simulations would be the only way that that would be an enjoyable experience because otherwise you're just i mean no because they're different personalities Mm. what's i don't know i don't know number two what is the real reality like i mean you wouldn't want to just live in the exact same type of reality in a video game that you live in in the quote real world so maybe the real reality in fourteen thousand five hundred is vastly different than what what we're experiencing right now. I would imagine. And this is novel to them. Number three, could you be in a video game within a video game? Within a video game. 13th floor. 13th floor, by the way, great movie. Watch it. (laughs) I love that movie. I know you do. I know. I just, um, like, I'm concerned about the uh, repercussions for real person experiencing emotions and pain and whatnot uh, and how that would affect their body because, you know, what our mind perceives is reality to us. Well, I mean, you can dream something and you you cry because 
it's sad in your dream, even though it's not real and you wake up and you're still sad. Maybe in 14,500, we've evolved to a point where we have no emotions and this is the only way that they can experience emotion. They've okay. created this. This hypothetical situation is very exhausting. To it's 14,500, sweetie. Fine. They also wonder what do the real beings look like in their non digital form? They probably kind of resemble us, but, but do they? I mean, who knows? No one said human appearance in video games had to reflect human appearance. I have read that it's not going to be too long until we're all the same color. Because of our... <laughs> you know. She's making a gesture with her finger. Well, two fingers, actually. One is a circle and the other is... Well, use your imagination. It's the dual slit theory. <laughs> no, that's not going to... It's the single slit theory. Like... <laughs> yeah. um, anyway, so you just totally think that that's not even a possibility. Well, I, there's nothing, I'm never going to say that, there's pretty much nothing that I would say, there's no way that's possible, because I recognize the limitations of my big stupid brain. Um, so, no, I'm, I don't believe that. Um, there's nothing that leads me to believe that that's in any way uh, reality. Uh, but I would never, I would never say that it's not in any way possible. I find it very interesting that science... There are facts that they're now determining uh, through experimentation in various areas of quantum physics. Yeah, but those people are all high. <laughs> no, well, maybe those people in the last website. I don't know. But but not the associate professor at Brandeis University. Well, maybe. I don't know. I but also think that if you are conducting experiments with a an idea in mind, you can create anything. I mean, if you have an end goal, you can find ideas that support that idea i think it's 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 unlikely that that's the case <laughs> but um i do find it very interesting that uh they're they're discovering things in the quantum physics realm that uh support the possibility of a holographic universe which would tie in nicely with this thought experiment of are we in a video game sure okay no it's fine it's fine <laughs> you just ain't buying it that's fine whatever i'm just gonna jump over you and go to the next level um excuse me what the hell's that supposed to mean <laughs> i have no idea all right then and now it's time for that thing in the middle in july of 1999 a Boy Scout leader, in search of a new adventure, decided to go for a bike ride in the wilderness. Well, he didn't return that night. So his wife called law enforcement and reported him missing. More than 40 deputy sheriffs searched by foot, by horseback, and with helicopters until the man's cries for help ultimately led them to his discovery. He was hanging upside down naked from a tree with a video camera positioned to capture the man's adventures on tape, which apparently didn't go as planned. Evidently, the man, who wore only shoes and was suspended 12 feet off the ground by a rope tied around his ankles, was attempting to film, quote, an auto-erotic situation. After completing his solo ritual, he was too tired to pull himself back up and untie his feet, so he hung upside down until rescued. Now, lack of circulation led to such severe injuries to his feet that his left extremity had to be amputated. 
Lake County Sheriff's Department Sergeant Nick Paito observed sagely, quote, some things are better confined to our own homes. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something, if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What you got for me? What, what you, what, what you, what you got for me? What, 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 what you got for me? So, in other words, what you got for me? Oh, I see. I was confused about what mm-hmm. you were asking mm-hmm. before, but sure. now that you've clarified, thank you. I think it's important to do that. Yeah, it's all about communication, you and me, simple and free. Baby, you're everything that I ever dreamed of. I might be. You are a dream. You're a holographic dream. If I were a hologram, I wouldn't have acne and wrinkles. <laughs> okay. Maybe that's the challenge you chose. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe in 14,500, that's a sign of beauty. Oh, yeah. So Maybe. <laughs> it is to me, sweetie. It's not fair. Anyway, <clears throat> I wanted to talk today about Sir George Sitwell. Sir George Sitwell. 
Yes. Sir George Raresby Sitwell, fourth baronet. George Sitwell was born in 1860. He was a British antiquarian, writer, and conservative politician who sat in the House of Commons between 1885 and 1895. George Sitwell's father died in 1862. And so that means that George was now the Baron at the age of two. That's asking a lot of a toddler. (laughs) He was educated um, at Oxford. He was a lieutenant in the West Yorkshire Calvary. He was elected to the Parliament for the constituency at in 1885 in the general election. And then a year later, in 1886, he married Lady Ida Dennison, who was just 17 years old. Um, She actually, after they got married, she ran away uh, back to her home and said that she didn't want to live with George and that he was weird. And um, (laughs) her parents made her go back. But even as a small person, uh, George Sitwell was described as a very eccentric boy. He was recorded as saying to a stranger on the train, I am Sir George Sitwell, baronet. I am four years old. I'm the youngest baron in England. At four, he said yeah, that. Yeah, which sounds exactly like something I would have said to a stranger. Precocious, precocious little shit. <laughs> So in uh, 1886, he lost the general election and he regained the seat in 1892, uh, but then lost it again in 1895. After he lost the seat for the second time, he decided he was going to expand upon his interests in other arenas, and he was done with politics. He had always been very interested in genealogy and uh, heraldry. Also, uh, he was a keen designer of gardens, which on their own don't seem like extraordinary interests, but he was someone who... um, when what he'd done, he'd done good. He thought in grandiose terms. Yeah. His hobbies were not weird, but the way that he pursued oh, them was okay. weird. Okay. Let's hear about it. So Sitwell worked um, on a biography of his ancestors and published the letters of the Sitwells and the other family <laughs> that he was a part of. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a long word that starts with this. Uh, his collection of books and papers are said to have filled seven sitting rooms at the family home in Derbyshire. So he was well-researched, let's put it that way. And the eccentricities he came by honestly. In 1808, George Sitwell's great-grandfather, whose name was Sitwell Sitwell... And he or, had or ST2. He had a saying that was so good they named him twice. Oh, okay. Uh, he held a lavish ball for the Prince of Wales, and that's how they, he ended up becoming a baron. He had made a lot of money uh, and had this big party, then became a baron. That's how the Sitwells nabbed their position in society. Okay. I think a better nickname for him would be S Dub 2. Well, Sitwell is just one word. Yeah, but if you were going to abbreviate it, Oh, sure, I guess. Yeah, no. So. Maybe just take out all the vowels. Make it like S-T-W-L-L. That was probably what he had on his vanity plate. Absolutely. Stwole. Stwole. Oh, I bet he was swole. Was he swole? Anyway, he was a he was an avid writer, and he wrote about the history of a lot of things, including acorns as an <laughs> article of the medieval diet. <laughs> that was a book that he wrote. Really? 
acorns <laughs> as an article of the medieval diet. <laughs> Sounds like a real page turner. The history of the fork. History of the fork. And the errors of modern parents, which I feel like um, maybe after reading some of the things that his children wrote, not something that he could have <laughs> spoken to with this much authority. Authority, uh, Yeah. He was careful, however, not to get uh, too engrossed in writing as a profession because he believed that novel writing had an ill effect on one's health. Okay. Uh, his daughter, Edith, wrote in her memoir that um, when she was a child, she had to wear an iron back brace in order to correct her back and a nose truss to reposition the her profile like her nose profile and we don't really know if those things were necessary wow sir george was obsessed with health and to the point where it's very possible that there was nothing wrong with edith's face okay let's go back to the nose truss sure just for a minute yeah. um is that a thing i don't think or did he make that up <laughs> no he uh, just fashioned it in his workshop <laughs> tinkering about one day in his tool shed <laughs> i'm gonna possible. build i'm gonna build uh, my 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 uh daughter uh, a nose truss where's my hammer <laughs> um that's very possible because word was that george's thoughts on health weren't always grounded in reality um whenever he traveled he kept with him a huge case of medicines which he very carefully mislabeled in case other people tried to use some of his medicines wow which is a That's, little sadistic yeah um <laughs> he had developed doesn't sound like a very good idea it sounds like a horrible plan he developed a real interest and we'll call it an interest about things italian so he spent long months abroad in full dinner dress attending italian rustic inns and uh collecting really unfashionable things just because they were Italian. It ended up amassing him quite a bit of money because he gathered a lot of Italian art that later on ended up being worth a lot. But um, he also would wear incredibly out-of-fashion outfits because they were Italian outfits, even if they weren't like fashionable in, like, a, in like a, Italy. How out-of-fashion? Like just maybe a, a few years or like centuries? Not sure about that detail. A few years, you know, that doesn't work. But if you're if you're if you're all of a sudden dressing like, you know, a, a European 17th century dandy, I think he that's was, pretty cool. I think he was more interested in the Italianness of things okay. than when they were Italian-y. Gotcha. Um, he also was fascinated with the traditional Italian style of gardening so much, though, that he wrote a book about it, <laughs> which actually saw mild success. Better and, than the fork book? I know, right? <laughs> How? Um, in 1909, he purchased the Castillo di Montegufoni near Florence. Um, that was a huge mansion that had been taken over by peasants. And at the time that he bought it, like 300 peasants lived in this house. Squatters. Yeah. And so he kicked them out and over the next three decades, restored it to its original design. And the family ended up living there in 1925. Um, but he wrote to the Archbishop of Canterbury and explained that one of the reasons that they moved there was because he wanted to avoid paying taxes in England. <laughs> 
So he revamped this mansion in Italy so that he wouldn't have to pay English taxes. He was really frugal in really strange ways. Yeah. For instance, he paid his son's allowance based on the amount paid by one of his forebears to his son during the Black Plague. And the reasoning behind that was just... That's how much he paid his son. During the Black Plague. Um, Here, son, here's your turnip. According to his son's school, he once tried to pay the school fees with produce from his garden. (laughs) No, I don't have all the euros that you want, but look at these carrots, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Hey, consider yourself lucky. My son got a turnip <laughs> for his allowance. Um, <clears throat> again, the kids uh, had a real hard time with certain facets of their parents' personality. George uh, allegedly worked out a plan to paint the cows on their estates uh, stenciled with blue and white Chinese willow patterns in order to make them look pretty Um, because cows aren't very pretty. So he wanted them Uh, to have like kind of this flow blue uh, pattern on them. Uh, But the... Allegedly, he wasn't able to follow through with that plan because the children put up such a fuss. Um, Plus, how expensive would cow stencils be? I would imagine quite a bit. See, mm. that's the thing is he he wanted to pay for his son's schooling with, with carrots, but wanted to invest dollars in stenciling a flow blue pattern on his cows. <laughs> they weren't parents I would recommend to anybody, remarked Edith. The daughter. But she said it like this. They're not parents. I want... Because she had the... Uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't believe, she went on to say, that there is another family in England who had parents like ours, and, and she may have been exactly right. Um, one of the ways that... One of the ways that George maintained his ability to live with the ideas and with the uh, intense commitment to his ideas that he did was they had a sign at the end of their driveway. Uh, It says in front of the estate, but I imagine that's at the end of the driveway. Sure. Uh, And it's read this. I must ask anyone entering the house never to contradict me in any way as it interferes with the functioning of the gastric juices and prevents my sleeping at night. He might have been onto something there. Edith wrote, my father's principal worry was that the world did not understand that it had been created in order to prove his theories. Okay. All right. He drew up plans for lots of really interesting inventions. So a notice trust might have been might one have of been them. Might have been one, yeah. Uh, but he did uh, create a musical toothbrush, <laughs> which played only one song. Uh, was it the SpongeBob SquarePants theme? <laughs> He also created. That's available to this day, I think. He also created what's called the Sitwell egg, which was a yolk of smoked meat surrounded by white rice. Which hmm. uh, apparently he went uh, about the town trying to hawk his Sitwell egg. Uh, apparently, going to an investor at one point, uh, unannounced, knocking on the door, letting himself in, and shouting, "I have brought for you an egg." That's quite a capital venture presentation. Yeah. It's an elevator pitch, if I've ever heard one. <laughs> I've brought you an egg. According to shootingparrots.uk, mm-hmm. 
as for Edith's literary ambitions, so the daughter wanted to be a writer, and he observed, George observed, that she had made a great mistake by not going for lawn tennis. In fact, (laughs) he seemed to think that her being an athlete of any kind was preferable to her being a writer. He was quoted as saying, nothing makes a young man likes so much a girl who's good at the parallel bars. He might have been onto something with that, too. Now, let's talk about Lady Ida Dennison. Lady Ida, from the get-go, was not real jazzed about this marriage. And how the actual marriage went, we don't know a lot about. But we do know that there was a lot of yelling in the house Mm -hmm. and that Lady Ida was very unhappy. And she spent all of the money that was given to her. Uh, She developed quite a taste for champagne and whiskey and at one point accrued a debt, uh, which I guess technically was fraud and was arrested. Mm. Oh, wow. Uh, George refused to pay that debt. So she was in jail for three months. Not even in fresh produce? Nope. According to his son, Sir George Sitwell had a nervous collapse in 1901 when Lady Ida became entangled in the scandal resulting from her debt and and hardcore alcoholism. So she had spent herself into jail and Sir George became a kind of a hermit. He retreated to a castle in Tuscany uh, where he had only his valet for company. And it's said that his valet throughout his life was his like BF. Um, after Ida died, Sir George left his family and moved to Switzerland, where he lived very quietly by himself. And uh, I don't know if that had to do anything to do with taxes, but um, <laughs> he did die there in 1943. In Tales My Father Taught Me, his son, Osbert, wrote of him. He was adept at taking hold of the wrong end of a thousand sticks. Yet, when by chance he seized the right end, his grasp of it was remarkable because of the intellectual power and application, as well as the learning which he brought to his task. So he just was, I don't know if you'd say like a jack of all trades, but because he was a very smart man and because he did have schooling and was so focused on learning, um, he was able to... Stumble into a good idea yeah, every once in a while. Yeah. Sure. It is really interesting how much that both of their children became writers and, and wrote stories about their childhoods mm. and how they had horrible parents, but it really made for some interesting <laughs> stories. I want to read those. Are they available still? I can find out. Okay. If, if, if they are, we'll put them on our Goodreads page. You know it. My big question is, did he ever write a follow-up to that fork book? Yeah, I think it was something to do with sporks. Oh, that sounds scandalous. Anyway, that's Sir, Sir George Sitwell. Or S-Dub 2. Or the guy who tried to stencil his cows. The end. <laughs> I am so excited about going back out and doing some live shows. We had so much fun uh, in February. And uh, again, it's going to be kind of a, kind of a uh, Halloween week mini tour. Kind of, sort of. And if you want to get an idea of what to expect, the the first show uh, is available on the YouTubes. The link is on our social media pages, but you could just uh, go to YouTube and type in Box of well, Oddities. Well, you know how to look for things. Box of Oddities, it's a live show. A live, one word. It's like, it's alive. See, that was the idea behind that. Nose truss. <laughs> That's it for us. We look forward to hanging out with you again on Monday. 
Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast. On Twitter at Box of Oddities and Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.